I'm Kieran. And I'm Eve. This is Kitchen Table Cult. Where two quiverful escapees talk about our experiences in the cultish underbelly of the religious right. Hi, Eve. Hi, Kieran. How are you? What's up with you? Um, sitting through a thunderstorm, hunting for jobs, you know, the usual. The usual. I, I got to go to Charlottesville this last weekend. Um, met up with my mom and my sister and um, Molly, friend of the pod, who we had on a couple months ago, Molly Conger, and um, Goat Gatsby, and got to see the Confederate monuments come down. Nice. And that was pretty great. That's very awesome. Yeah. You know, it's it's interesting. Like, I wrote a whole piece about it, and I don't know if I'm going to be able to get it placed, but the it was so surreal to have such a small crowd. There's maybe 300 people max and they took down three monuments in one day and they announced it like 15 hours before they started. Um, so it was like a very short turnaround, short notice. And that was on purpose so that the fash couldn't show up, mm-hmm. but it was really interesting. Just the fact that the national news like, was over it by the next day because the whole conversation about taking those monuments down, like when that started, the city council voted in favor of it in February, 2017. And that's why Richard Spencer and the KKK came to town Mm -hmm. to protest those coming down. So we've had this whole fucking cycle of, you know, protests and counter protests and you know i was in dc when richard spencer showed up there for the the anniversary of that Mm -hmm. with uh robert in 2018 just like all these things it was just really weird to see it come down in such a quiet simple easy fashion after just years of being in battle yeah i was surprised that it didn't get as much coverage as like, like I, I expected it to be much bigger because it was finally coming down and this whole moment has like been leading up to this, but. I mean, they, they took down three statues on Saturday and one statue on the UVA, UVA campus on Sunday. And by like Monday evening and Tuesday morning, like editors were passing on it saying it was old news. <laughs> and I'm just like, what the fuck? Well. <laughs> anyway, um, pretty cool, pretty cool stuff. It was really, really cool to see. Yeah, that's huge. Uh, I'm good. I'm weirdly cold because thanks to climate change, everywhere is boiling around me except here where it feels like winter. (laughs) So, you know, also doing freelance stuff, hanging in there. Uh, unsurprisingly our COVID cases are rising. So everyone's like, no, you have to wear masks inside again. And I'm like, why did we stop? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Welcome to the apocalypse. Yeah. It's climate change isn't coming. It's already here. Good luck. Have fun. But we have a guest. Uh, Listening to us. (laughs) (laughs) Would you like to introduce yourself and the book? Hi, I'm Molly Maeve Egan, and I've been patiently listening. Yeah, there's so much to say, but I won't. 
And, oh, right, you don't have video. I am co-author of Behind Blue Curtains with Lizzie Hirschberger, which is a true crime memoir of an Amish woman's survival, escape, and pursuit of justice. And that's me, Molly. Hi. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming. We're really glad to have you. Yeah. So I guess we'll just kind of jump right in because uh you co-wrote this and this is a true crime novel about the Amish community and things that happen in the Amish community um can you just give us sort of like a brief overview of the story rather than like the whole general book cover arc sure well so Lizzie Hirschberger grew up in a very conservative Amish community in Minnesota and she lived a typical Amish life in a lot of respects, including that she was sexually abused by her pastor slash employer at 14 years old. And she eventually escapes. She calls it escapes from a cult. And 30 years later comes forward against her abuser in court, surrounded by other free, independent, newly free and independent women, and finds her voice. And um, it was a landmark case at the time, only happened, I guess, in 2019. But the the book is really, you know, our journey to find her her real story and the, the story behind the blue curtains, which is very symbolic, of course. How did you run into her and her story? What was your first encounter with, with Lizzie? So I was working with another woman who was former Swartz and Struber Amish, and we sort of collided in the Me Too movement, which was happening that year. A lot of us who'd been abused were sort of finding each other in virtual spaces. And she sort of passed the project on to me, saying she didn't have enough time. And at the, it was really just supposed to be a short ebook about growing up Amish, it, it only turned into Behind Blue Curtains much later. So I took on the project and that's, that's how it started. Were you, do you have any like background with being Amish or having Amish friends or like? I do not <laughs> at all. So I knew nothing about them. I just saw them, you know, in passing in Pennsylvania with the bonnets and the suspenders. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, at, at the beginning, it was really just sort of trying to sort out what these words meant and what kind of, like, was she wearing a bonnet or a cap or, and then when she started telling me about the rules, no electricity, no books, except the Bible, no movies, no radio, nothing except for the Bible and girls are taught to be seen and not heard. And our conversation started turning into like, what? Wait, what do you mean they did that? Like, what? Well, who would do that? And it really became an education <laughs> for me. Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, I'm like, this was my entire MFA was my the- <laughs> my thesis advisor being like, wait, 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 what mm-hmm. and why? Yeah. <laughs> and she she would talk about it like it was normal. I'd be like, whoa, 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 mm-hmm. whoa, whoa. I'm not sure even what you're talking about. 
And I think, you know, she hadn't been Amish for many, many years, but I don't think she'd ever really had a relationship with the child of revolutionaries from Brooklyn. And I certainly had, you know, and here we are forming this friendship and, and getting to know each other. And I think she started to see it in a different light, especially when she turns 14 and she found these journals and that's when the memory started to come back. But when mm -hmm. she started telling me about her life, especially from 14 on, when her education ended, as it does for all Amish mm -hmm. children. Which, um, and can I just make a footnote there? Please. Like, the reason homeschool laws in the United States are able to be so lax is because of Wisconsin v. Yoder, which allows Amish Mennonite families to end the education of their children for religious reasons at 14 in order to help with the family and the farm and all of that. And HSLDA has just capitalized on that. But yeah. sorry. But no, wow, that is the first time anyone, usually when I say Wisconsin versus Yoder, people don't know what I mean. So thank you. That was eloquent. <laughs> and I will tell you that, you know, I think we have a long way to go to overturn that because the Supreme Court, the federal Supreme Court just overturned a decision made in Minnesota that Lizzie testified for saying that the Amish can poop wherever they they want with no septic system and everyone else has to drink that water five days later because religious freedom. So that's what's going on today. Today. Oh that just happened. <laughs> oh my God. I'm putting yeah. something in the chat. That's yeah, I, I could. If you can talk about this all day. I mean, it's. Dave so said, when yeah, I, you can cut this out, but like we helped found this organization that. Kieran's wearing the shirt for. Okay, I want to know because we founded an organization. I think we need to talk after this. Yeah, we'll talk after <laughs> yeah. this. Dave can cut this out. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's it's um, Wisconsin Beoder is is a big big deal and um, really affects a lot more stuff than people are aware of. Right. I had heard about Wisconsin versus Beoder, but I didn't realize that they could just be sent off to be indentured servants for free and that's their life. And they can also be sexually assaulted and it's all good with the community and they're shamed for life. So when all these things started coming out and Lizzie started telling me more and I started realizing this was their normal way of life, that's when the book really took a turn. So what I'm understanding, let me make sure I get this right, you're saying that Lizzie came to you and she wanted to write this book about being Amish, but didn't remember everything until you were partway through the project and she found these diaries that are mentioned throughout the book. It's not that she didn't remember. It's that she remembered that she had had, that she had stolen a man's, uh, a woman's husband, uh. that she had had, she had had a scandalous affair that she had done something horribly shameful, you know, but this was not what she was writing her story about in the first place. Right. And she knew mm. what happened. She knew deep down, but she didn't have the language to tell yeah. me what had happened. She was surrounded by people who didn't want her to talk about it. And so yeah. just by starting to speak about it is when she when the truth came out and she, she wasn't even able to say the word rape this for is a, a very couple common, of years. Like experience for 
childhood yeah. sexual abuse survivors, I yeah. think. Shoved initially was too graphic a word to use in that initial rape scene. So we <clears throat> had a long way to go. For her, you mean? Yes, uh-huh. for her. So, you know, the book is really a testament to her journey because she's a much stronger woman today. I mean, she was strong to get through all of that. And she's strong to have gotten through the last few years and have published this book. But I I can't, I can't overstate this woman's strength and courage and everything that she's been through. It's really extraordinary. Yeah, reading the book was really, it was really familiar. um, Mm Because it's something that we see a lot in homeschooling and like evangelical church communities as well like to the to the point where you are shamed for stuff being done to you and like well and also like even though the the like the rules are different and the culture is different like you I know so many teenage girls in my church who were who were given over to babysit whoever their parents said they had to babysit for and were not allowed to take payment for it and like it just was a normal me, thing. Me. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you, but also I'm like thinking of like other girls in my, my like care group, my home group. Yeah. Like they were like, I was allowed to accept payment for babysitting and that was unusual. Yeah. Yeah. It like the, the child labor, like there's a reason there are so many 14 year olds working at Chick-fil-A um, and they're all homeschooled mm. and it's just, it's very, it's very common. Uh, Mm -hmm. in these environments too, which is why I was like, oh, wow, this is just, I was not surprised, but also kind of like, I didn't realize how common that thread was through like high demand religious and cult like groups. Yeah. And it's not just the Amish, it's Mennonites and Anabaptists and all the different sects and you that have come off. So I think this, this is going on much more than people realize much more than I certainly realize. Yeah. And I will just give like a little note here that like most, there's a large portion of Mennonite communities that are, they're fairly conducted. They're, they're, integrated into contemporary culture in different ways and like they don't have this kind of isolationism my one of my high school best friends was a a you know Mennonite who was not participating in any of that um so there's 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 different sects of it and there's different different degrees of it but the more isolationist you get the more chances there are for people to hide this kind of abuse yeah and to be fair a lot of them when they do leave they remain they want to continue homeschooling. They want to continue having the Bible be their their source of information. And there still is a lot of you know extremism being practiced because that's all they know. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you know, I don't want to offend because I, I have a lot of respect and I work with a lot of people from these communities who are highly intelligent, extremely hardworking very ethical people mm-hmm. so yeah yeah it's hard to leave everything that you've known and start over from completely zero like that's that's right. a whole process that yeah and i are familiar with <laughs> once, yeah <laughs> once you start just dismay- once you start tugging on that thread the entire sweater unravels immediately yeah 
-hmm. Like, for example, there's still a difference in opinion about LGBTQ issues and it creates tension. And however, with that said, it, it is starting the conversation. And mm -hmm. anytime you start a conversation, there's room for movement. And that's what I see. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I feel like conversation starting is huge. And that was sort of my takeaway from reading the book also was that this is like part of a bigger conversation and a way to help people start having a conversation by realizing, oh, this extends to like all these other communities that we thought of that were like, you know, pure and wholesome and nice. And it's like, well, actually, no, <laughs> it right. turns out. And in the same sense, they could, they probably before they met me saw liberal child of revolutionaries from Brooklyn as, as scary, you know, mm -hmm. somebody who wanted to rob them high on crack. And that's not the case. So we all learn something about each other, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's interesting that you, you know, saying that this like came out of the, the Me Too movement and you were connecting with people in the Me Too movement, because this is, you know, absolutely a, a Me Too story, but like the power of speaking about what happened is happening is kind of the thing that unlocks Lizzie's ability to get out and to recognize what's happening. And, you know, even the writing process later, giving her more um, autonomy over her narrative. You want to talk a little bit about what that was like uh, writing that and watching that happen? Well, you know, there were chunks of time where Lizzie and I would communicate through Google Docs and she would tell me this word is too graphic. And, and this is, you know, this was even just for like some of the little abuses that were happening or animal abuse, which I couldn't bring myself to write about. Yeah. So, all right. So at one point, Lizzie kind of dropped out of writing and that was about the time she turned 14 and I was sort of, it was winter and I was living in Washington, DC. And, you know, I, I realized I had to dig down deep and really think about my own experience. And that's when, you know, the book took on a completely different turn just from being a writer to like processing a lot of my own you know, trauma. I, I was swept up in the Me Too movement because uh, at 15, James Toback, who was a movie producer, approached me on the street and groomed me. And that was a story that I had just started to tell, but I never really got to finish telling it. And I certainly never got justice. And so I was left with this barn scene where the first rape takes place. And I really had to start processing some of my own memories Mm. and Lizzie called me up one day and she said, I did it. I reported him. And that's when I saw her take a turn and she was ready. You know, she mm -hmm. had this fire to tell the truth because as soon as she reported it, she started getting backlash just like she did when she was a kid and she was right. being called a slut and a whore and being told to repent and, and being called every name you can imagine. Mm -hmm. And instead of backing down, you know, she got some security cameras and a gun and started writing and, you know, started really <laughs> telling me her story. And I went out to Minnesota um, for the sentencing. And so I was actually there 
with her writing the impact statement. Mm-hmm. And we had a we had a great time. I, I shot guns. I rode ATVs. I talked to her kids, <laughs> and I think our fighting spirit really came out. You know, seeing not only seeing him being sentenced to six weeks was not the point. It was mm-hmm. seeing her up there speaking her truth, watching the judge get choked up with emotion, and being surrounded by all these other women, some of whom had driven up to seventeen hours overnight. Just to be there in the courtroom, we're all holding hands and crying, you know, and it was, it was a beautiful moment. moment of like public acknowledgement that what happened was real. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I wasn't getting my story told and I certainly couldn't keep up with the Hollywood Me Too movement. And, you know, I really felt at home with these women. I really did. As different as I was, I felt at home. And so we started an organization and now we're all working together. <laughs> nice. Yeah, so you, you were going to tell us a little bit about what happened after the book, because you, you, you mentioned that there's, there's been some development since it came out. Yeah, so that day at the sentencing, I met a, a lot of other survivors, one of whom is Joanna Yoder, and she was a survivor of Mennonite abuse. And I met a lot of other women, and we started talking about how can we prevent any survivor from having to stand up in a courtroom by themselves mm-hmm. and look mm-hmm. at not only their abuser on the other side of the courtroom, but the but their family, their friends, their church members. This is what women have yeah. to deal with. Mm-hmm. How can yeah. we make sure this never happens again? And Never Stand Alone was formed. And Lizzie um, is now a victim's advocate and a translator in Pennsylvania. And we all work together to help women with whatever they need and and children escape, uh, do police reports, get the DAs and the prosecutors to take their case seriously mm-hmm. because they get a lot of influence by the church. Mm-hmm. And we've grown to a point now that we can call someone up, a, a DA, and say, well, you know, this can go really well and look really good for you guys or badly because the facts are the facts. We don't make them up. Mm -hmm. Right. And we know the law and all these survivors are now starting to educate themselves and know the law. That's great. Yeah. So there's a lot, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting to see them come out. These women who've been taught to be seen and not heard making protest signs and, Mm -hmm. you know, coming out and using their voice and they all have stories to tell. I find it really interesting in, and I'm giving a bit of a spoiler for the book, but um, that the moment where Lizzie kind of decides to stop putting this in the past is when she hears about a female teacher at her student's school preying on a male student. And yeah. I, that's one really, you know, obviously it's a horrific, horrific thing, but it's one of those stories that often gets tossed aside. And like she commented about how, you know, everybody was reacting like good for him kind of thing. Um, and that's a very common response to that kind of situation. And I just, I loved that she took what was happening to him just as seriously as yeah. it, for anyone else. You know, I remember talking with her about that and thinking how easy it would be to be as a woman and as a survivor 
to feel like that somehow empowers, you know, a, a woman to be in the predator position. And it's just not, it, to me, like we have such a responsibility to turn these horrible abuses into good. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's all there, all the, you know, recovery is possible. There, there's therapy, there, 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 there's so many pathways to, to go good, you know what I mean? And to mm-hmm. sort of step out of that, um, because it's easy to be a victim and then become an abuser. Mm-hmm. That's why we have so many abusers and so many victims. But yeah, that was, that was hard because I, I certainly don't want women to be portrayed that way, but it's the truth. And you can go either way. You can become an abuser or you can heal and go on to try and heal others. So I kind of also liked that the, you know, she didn't, y'all didn't shy away from showing men that way too. The mother mm-hmm. figure being essentially someone who's perpetuating that cycle and really only interested in her own, her own pleasure um, and her own escapism. You know, she's, probably been a victim in the same ways we don't have that confirmed but it seems evident and and so it's it's there's just like you don't want to be like her motivation for lizzie but also just like it's it's clear that the mother is is a victim of this cycle as well Mm -hmm. yeah and you know i always have a soft spot for women you know and, and any any victim honestly but i don't understand that because I didn't go that way. I could have become, I could have become an abuser. And, you know, I had to take certain steps. I had to stop drinking 10 years ago. Mm. I had to stop drinking so that I did not become an abuser. I had to pull myself out of certain relationships. I had to get therapy. Like I had to face what happened because trust me, I grew up poor in Brooklyn and I could have become a criminal. (laughs) You know, I was angry. And, but I don't know. I, I it's hard for me to understand Mem's character, and nobody understands her. The publisher actually, I think, cut a little bit about her because she just said, "I don't understand this behavior," and I I, I, I can sympathize. <laughs> I don't either. You know. Oh, that's so funny because I just I recognize her. I mm. I just recognize her so clearly. She's mm. she's so many homeschool moms I know. Like, there's yeah. like layers to it where you know, the, the drinking and the sleeping around are a little bit more, um, unusual for that community, but still like people have double lives and double standards and are, you know, decide that they're just out for their own survival. Like it's, I don't know. I felt, I felt very, you know, I was enjoying reading how complex she was. Well, I'm glad because I think that's the point is that people are complex and Mm -hmm. you know, everybody has this a little bit of good and evil in them. It's about what we choose to do, but I do like writing complex characters because I don't feel everyone is just black and white. And the other person that I feel that way about in the book is the dad Mm -hmm. who disappoints us horribly three quarters Mm -hmm. of the way in. And, and honestly, I wasn't even sure that, you know, I was, uh, hesitant to to address that, but it's the truth. Mm-hmm. And I think that you know they love their father anyway. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, one of the things I think about, I, I was trying to explain to someone in my community and I'm not going to get too into details um, about who this person is, but like explaining to this person who's perpetually baffled by why I'm not in touch with my father and why I won't, you know, resume communication with him. And I realized after a number of years of back and forth on this topic that this person has forgiven men for doing all the same things that he has done in their life in various different ways to them. And so anything my father has done doesn't seem that drastic. And so it's easy to excuse it and be just like, well, if I can forgive them, why can't you? You know, it's, it's what you're used to and mm-hmm. um, what you decide you're willing to put up with if you don't want to change and you're already comfortable with it, yeah, you can be close with these complex characters and these complex people and, and forgive and love them and acknowledge all the dark spots in them. You don't have to, you know, um, end communion with them. Well, there's so much emphasis on forgiveness in these communities um, and so much guilt if they don't forgive. And so I think it's really wound up in the fabric of who they are to feel like, you know, if they don't forgive, they're not going to get into heaven. What is the, what does forgiveness look like? How is that defined for them? You know, that would be a good question for Lizzie. I think she'll tell me, she'll tell me that she forgives certain people, but I, I think that's different for everyone, you know, especially when you're you're led by a concept or, you know, a, of God. Mm-hmm. Like they are, like she describes him, Paul Bunyan standing 10 feet high, ready to strike you down. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think you can let that go easily, whatever that I, is. But they are all very faith-driven. And so I know that forgiveness, they're, they're always being feeling like they they're being called to those higher duties such as forgiveness. I don't even know what forgiveness really means. You know, that was someday. my yeah. well, that was my next question. Is so my friend Liz Lenz wrote on her her newsletter this week about bad men and what to do with them and kind of what forgiveness looks like and how it can be different from like restoration and community and you know what what does it look like to have the non carceral you know, kind of justice for these kinds of situations. And, and I was curious reading this, like if your under, if your relationship to forgiveness changed at all through this writing process. Mm. I, you know, that's, that may be too personal of a question. (laughs) (laughs) I'm always struggling with the concept of forgiveness. Oddly through this, I had a lot of you know, I was I was really sick with complex PTSD when I first mm-hmm. took the book. Like I really people think I'm being dramatic, but I was I thought I was going to die within a couple of years. And I got better through this process. It wasn't just writing. It was seeing something that we had worked so hard for achieved. Mm-hmm. It was seeing 
everything that I wanted for it happening. Mm -hmm. And I started to get better, like physically, mentally, and spiritually. And a lot of things from my past sort of came back to haunt me. I don't know if that's coincidence. I, I, this whole experience was spiritual for me on so many levels, and I was not brought up with God. But there were so many coincidences, and a lot of my past came back to haunt me personally. And I was asked for forgiveness. And, you know, I never responded. It's something that I feel doesn't have to do with the other person for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my understanding of it for myself has always been very much like, I can make peace with what happened, and that can be a kind of forgiveness, but I don't have to welcome you back into my life. I don't, the other person, it's none of the other person's business whether I forgive them or not, in my opinion. That's for me. Yeah. I just thought of that, so. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's basically how, like, I guess I practice it or would practice it when I like get to that point with everything where it's (laughs) like like I'm not gonna call my parents on the phone and be like I forgive you for all this stuff that you don't acknowledge that you did I don't need that and that just wouldn't be a good conversation but I could just like let go of it right Mm -hmm. and be like yeah that happened and that's fucked up and sometimes like this is sort of a tangent but as my siblings are getting older, sometimes some of the things I think about is like, well, I talk a lot about like how I was raised and how it was like not great and bad and abusive actually. And I I wonder like, hmm, that probably like makes my family feel kind of uncomfortable. And then I'm like, well, (laughs) but it's true. And it's important for me to talk about it. And if they wanted to be portrayed better, they should have treated me better. Mm. If they didn't want to be called out for their abusive beliefs and practices, they shouldn't have done that because that was a choice that they made. And I kind of resonated a lot with what we were talking about with men because I saw a lot of my mom in her. Like Mm. my mom also was abused as a child and didn't abuse me or us in the same way. And so I had like, a lot of empathy is like seeing my mom as like a full human being and not just this sort of like mean God character that she kind of felt like in my childhood, but also at the same time, not excusing the fact that she still made the choice to continue that, whether or not it was cognitive. Right. Like there was, this is stuff I talk about in therapy all the time where it's like my parents really just needed to get help. And help is there for them if they ever want to get it. Right. And that's like on them. But that doesn't negate that all of their actions and the words and the things that they did had really drastic consequences. Exactly. Yeah. And I will say that some days I can feel forgiveness and some other days I can't. Yes. And that's yes. also, also why that. I don't go announcing things. Yeah. <laughs> that is I, that is a mood. That is relatable. <laughs> so um, one of the things that I think is really interesting, you've got on your website some victim impact statements that you've helped write. Um, this seems to be a thing that you do often. And I know that 
you know, that is a very particular kind of document for a very particular kind of purpose. Um, but in our community that we come from in, you know, the circles that we've, we've come out of and the people we've stayed in touch with, and even some among our listeners, we, we have people who will want to communicate their stories and want to write it down. And, you know, it's hard and it does bring up a lot of PTSD stuff and you have to, you know, reanimate these awful moments to do it. What advice do you have for people who want to write their stories out and, and then for them, you know, what, what should they do with them after? Well, the first piece of advice, which I always hated as a young writer is write. I'd be like, oh, that's not even right. Like, I am not that person who's going to say that I wake up every day and no matter what, I write. Okay, I'm not that superhero. (laughs) I am a very temperamental, moody, like, I'm a genius, I fucking suck, you know, type of writer, which Mm -hmm. I think is the best kind. So... The biggest thing for me is I need mental space to write. And, you know, Virginia Woolf said a room of her own. It doesn't just mean a space. Like, it means mental space. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do talk to a lot of people who want to write, and they say, like, I just sit down and I don't know what to write. You know, there are a lot of, that's where a lot of, like, prompts come in. And honestly, those are easy. You can get them anywhere. But if you have any, any headspace at all, any vacation time, any days off, like any of that, if you can write in the middle of the night, you got to really go deep. And I would say, give yourself at least an hour or two just to process and feel like, I can't write. I can't do this. I can't mm-hmm. do this. If that's your writing time, that's fine. Next time, you'll do it for a little less. Like it, there's so much pressure, right, to like produce all this stuff. And a lot of it really is like being still, sitting and just writing about almost anything. Mm-hmm. Do I want to say you can do it on your own? Like it's not easy. You know, structure is hard. How do you keep a reader interested reading about my innermost thoughts, you know? And like I don't want to just say, hey, go to my website because not everybody has the resources to work with someone else. Mm -hmm. But there are so many virtual groups, like you were talking about NaNoWriMo. Um, That's actually where I got started one summer. I wrote something completely unrelated. I wrote Celtic fantasy, but I was Mm -hmm. in this cabin with these other fantasy writers and I really, really wrote a lot. So I encourage people to do that, like virtual writing rooms. And that's something that we're working on in various capacities to like build. Mm-hmm. But there's I one that I participate in pretty regularly called the London Writers Salon, or London Writers Hour. That's really good. Mm. Um, yeah, there's a yeah, lot of like, spaces like that. Yeah, there are. And honestly, I'm, I'm not part of them because I'm an introvert. Um, <laughs> and also like, I just have so much going on. But I love I love that concept, and that's what I tell people. In to in do. terms of writing, in particular, these these stories of leaving or coming to terms with abusive situations, writing stories where you know, just like one of the things I noticed that you did was you didn't explain the you know particular uh, 
you know, Amish Dutch German words that were coming up in the text. Like there's so many cultural things that are these details that are hard for outsiders to encounter and know what to do with. And, and so if you're writing your abuse story and you're also coming out of a high control group, there's going to be a lot of cultural translation that you're going to feel compelled to do. And that gets in the way of the story a lot of the time. Yeah. What do you advise for that? You mean like the difference between explaining the cultural side and mm-hmm. the, and just telling the fucking story? You know, it's funny you say that because a lot of, I had to, you know, the, the, the beginning of writing the book was a lot of getting that technical stuff down. And the second part was the emotional. Mm-hmm. But then I saw, you know, there were some edits made from the publisher sort of like explaining no, a cap with a K-A-P-P. So I really needed a second set of eyes. And I think that was helpful for Lizzie because she would start to explain something as if I already knew what it meant. Mm-hmm. And of course I didn't. So I wish as writers we could just be super supportive of each other mm-hmm. and read each other's work. And I, I say that with hesitance because it's, it's hard to get people to read your work. These days, you know? I, I, I relate to that. I mean, when I'm writing my stuff, especially if I'm writing about Christian fundamentalism in the world I came out of, I, I try to always have an, a normie reader and an insider. So I have someone who gets the world who's reading it and just can be like, yes, this works. This makes sense. And someone from outside the world who's reading it, who can be like, I'm not confused by anything. And this makes sense. Right. I did have a couple of like we had a couple of readers before it was published. Beta readers are great. <laughs> beta readers. But, you know, a lot of them had much bigger problems. Like, why did she leave the family when at Christmas and it was going to be so great? She could go back to school. She had a chance. Why did she leave? And I'm like, <laughs> that's, that's not what, the important question. That's what, but that's what survivors do. Honestly, like, yeah. I, yeah. you know, so. Safety is terrifying. I thought about like, that too. That's so hard. Yeah, I, when I got to that scene, I was like, "I would love a little exposition here," but also I get it. <laughs> it's funny because you know I wanted to get so many things across. Like when I came out with my story about James Toback, it was a grooming story. Mm-hmm. It did not end with the Big Bang that all, than mm-hmm. any reporter wanted. It was a story about grooming, and, and people weren't really ready to talk about that. We were just starting to talk about, hey, no means no for the 800th time. <laughs> oh, yeah. Right, right, right. And this, and and then when I was left with the story, and I realized it was a grooming story, and how important it was to get across to people how insidious and subtle and dangerous grooming is. Mm-hmm. like that's when this, this fire just started. And I was like, I can get this across and maybe I'm not going to get it across to, you know, everyone I thought I was, but maybe I can get it across to some of the survivors in these communities who can still get out or who can, who can do something about it. And apparently mm-hmm. that's what people are saying. Like people are more and more survivors are escaping and looking for information about like sex ed. Just anything that corroborates <laughs> your experience is liberating. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that so, makes so much sense. Yeah. You know, I did not have an easy path. I didn't have like a mentor or a guide. And and that wasn't my way out of, you know, severe mental illness either. It was mm. a lot of 
things that didn't work. It was a lot of suffering. It was a lot of being alone and trying to figure it out and then reaching out for help. You know, recovery is involved. But I'm really excited that people are starting to talk about writing these stories. And I think we're going to find more and more groups. And we we are. Um, I want to ask you um, a little bit more along these lines. Like, okay, so if people are writing their stories, that's that's good. That's hard. And you've given some advice on that. And you also worked with a survivor who was in the process of reporting and using the like existing justice system to try to get some closure. What advice do you have for people who might be trying to, you know, interested in reporting? So, you know, years after the fact or, you know, trying to pursue formal uh, carceral justice stuff. The first thing I would say is don't do it alone. I hate to say that because like you can't just magically create, you know, support, but there is support Mm -hmm. out there and you need somebody to be able to process it with a therapist, a good therapist Mm -hmm. is is always good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Support groups, whatever you're in recovery from drugs, alcohol, food, men, you know, dildos, I don't care what it is like there's a recovery group for you. Find a victim's advocate. Um, reach out to one of the organizations like RAIN. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. if you're from one of these secluded communities, you can reach out to Never Stand Alone. But find an advocate, find support, and I would say tell somebody your story first. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't recommend going and just talking to an investigator if you've never. <laughs> told yeah. Oh my God, it's so bad. There's, there's, yeah. there's, it's not fun. Yeah. And they're going, you know, it's, it's good to be able to talk with someone who has the capacity and the skills to really give you that space to listen um, and not trigger you. That's why we talk about being trauma informed and why it's so important, because Mm -hmm. if you sit down with a survivor and say what happened and then you leave, you know, it's very important, like what space you've left that survivor in, it it Mm -hmm. can make or break Mm -hmm. a survivor. So the support is very important. Also, just a, a note here for our listeners, if you um, try this out with your therapist for the first time, telling that story is important, but therapists are also mandatory reporters. So if there's enough to identifying details in your story for them to know who it is and how to report it accurately, they will be legally obligated to do so. So if you don't want to get to that point before you're ready, make sure you stay vague enough on those things. Right. In fact, it wasn't Lizzie's decision to press charges. It was the DA's decision. You know, Mm. that wasn't even her end goal. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. The system has certain mechanisms that you can't stop once you kick them over. Yeah. And, you know, unfortunately, lawyers aren't trauma informed. I've been through this process and I thought, oh, I have this great attorney, you know, and they were not really trauma informed. And a lot of people who say they're supportive, I I just think it's so important that we as a community learn what trauma informed means. Even if you're having a casual conversation with a friend, it it can make a huge difference how you listen and how you speak. Mm -hmm. Well, I feel like this was really helpful. I know the book was like, it's really heavy. It's not a light read. This was my first introduction to true crime also. So I'm like, Ooh. all right, this is now I know. Uh, <laughs> okay. Yeah. That's that, that, that actually surprised me because I, I read true crime in high school a lot and I just, you know, I, okay. I well, listen, I'm just going to be honest. 
Um, memoirs were don't sell shit. So true crime does. Yes. And I just realized at the end that it is a memoir, but it is also true crime. Right. So it's all semantics. Yeah. It's a yeah. it's semantics, but yeah, true crime as a genre is it, it's actually really interesting because it's very rare within the true crime genre to have the narrative be told from the perspective of the victim. And so that's remarkable. Um, God, Elon Green's book just came out, uh, Last Call. It's about a guy who was a, a serial killer in um, New York at the height of the AIDS epidemic okay, who yeah, was yeah, killing yeah. gay guys he'd pick up in bars. And the story is told from giving little biographies of each of the victims. It's not about the serial killer. It's about the people who he killed. And mm. and that's that was lauded as unusual mm. because in the true crime genre, it is really unusual. And so that's another way your book also stands out to me. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, it was really good and thank you. Not was, surprisingly, but surprisingly relatable. It was really <laughs> hard to write. And um I'm just, you know, we get a lot of feedback especially from former Amish and Mennonite women who say they couldn't put it down. And that, that was exactly what I wanted. Yeah. I told her we got to put Little House on the Prairie with like, you know, this true crime <laughs> twist. I was literally just sitting on my kitchen floor for like an hour and a half, just engrossed reading it. <laughs> so. Have you had any surprises in terms of, you know, reaching audiences that you didn't expect you know, to be really into it, who are really excited about it. You know, I'm just really, I, I'm really happy with the response from the intended audience. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I worried while I was writing it, you know, what, you know, Terry Gross of Fresh Air might think, or like, you know, this, <laughs> this guy that I went to college with, who, who had a lot, used a lot of fancy words. And, you know what I mean? I was like, yeah. is this, is this uh, literary enough? And mm -hmm. I really wanted to reach the survivors and mm -hmm. the response we've had from them and from women in that community and from that community and from around those communities, especially has been more than I could have ever asked for. That's the real gift is Lizzie telling me that she met a reader in a bookstore and they broke down crying and, you know, they were inspired to come mm. forward and, you know, all the, the people Amazing. that we work with. Yeah. So, you know, if, if Reese Witherspoon wants to come play Lizzie Hirschberg in a movie, that's great. But <laughs> in the meantime, I'm very happy. <laughs> that's awesome. You know, I'm so glad. It would be nice to make a couple bucks too. Yeah. Writing is not an affluent I, no. If anybody's hoping to get rich, oh no! I try to for you. make sure I tell everybody that all the time. Um. Yeah, it is not. <laughs> it is not a money making profession, but worth it, it nonetheless. Yeah, 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 and it was really like I really loved that. Like I think part of the reason that it resonates with so many survivors is because it it shows a way out really mm -hmm. clearly from someone who's on the inside. So it's very mm -hmm. easy to imagine your path out if you're yes. like in yes. that space right and so that was like I think one of my favorite things about the book is just like that little gift that is so big that's like you are in a very closed situation but here is a path that you can imagine now that's and I think that's very powerful 
Thank you. That's a huge compliment. Well, the book is behind blue curtains. So everyone uh, go find it on bookshop.org and buy it from your favorite place. Or is it anywhere else? It's on Amazon. I think it's on barnesandnoble.com, Kindle. Um, I've thought about, you know, just running in with stacks and throwing them on Barnes and Noble shelves, but I don't know. You can do that at libraries. Okay. All right. Well, yeah, Barnes and Noble will throw them out, but you can do that at the library. All right. Former bookseller here. (laughs) (laughs) I have done this before. Uh It's great. It's so fun. And then it's like, they go to the library, so it's yeah easy to find. Like right. homeschoolers live at the library. Instead of doing good. a glamorous book tour, we're going to do a like throwing our book into the library tour. Yes, illegally. Great. Yes, in the deposit here box. So they're just like, oh, I guess I forgot to scan this. <laughs> if our Thanks. listeners want to find you or Lizzie, um, where can they follow you? I am at mollymave.com or mollymaveegan.com. Uh, Lizzie is at lifebehindbluecurtains.com, I think, which was the original name of the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, she has a Facebook presence. We both do our work for survivors. I'm at Never Stand Alone USA. And I don't know, we're out there. I know that Lizzie's P.O. box is in the back of the book, so anyone can reach her. And anyone is free to reach out to me also through my website. I'm happy to answer questions. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. It was was so good to have you. I can't wait to go catch up on your podcast. I'll give you five (laughs) stars. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you all for listening to us uh, ramble on and joining us this time thank you so much to dave the great for making us sound good every single week and if you like the music on this podcast that is due to the heavens the song is janet from their album stenazo thank you for letting us use your music uh you can support the podcast and join the slack by going to patreon which is patreon.com kitchen table cult pod we have a good time. There's a lot of real good animal pictures and we, you know, bitch about brains being fragile soup and other things. It's great. You should join us. If you have any questions or comments that are nice or constructive, <laughs> uh, you, can, <laughs> you can email us at kitchentablecult at gmail.com or poke us on Twitter at kitchencultpod. Thanks for listening. As always, we will see you next time. Bye. Bye.